Welcome to the Sunday morning podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Burgess Hill. This message is by Colin Squires. Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Colin, um, along with my wife, Kate, with a congregation pastors here in Horsham. But with us, joined this morning by all of Kingdom Faith around here. We've got Crawley joining us live. Good morning to you. And of course, Worthing and Burgess Hill joining us with Church in the Home this morning. And uh, I believe God wants to speak this morning. I'm going to start with this quote from John Stott, that amazing Bible commentator and uh, an author. Excuse me a moment. If we come to Scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it only an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Amen? Whoever you are, whatever your background, whether you call yourself a Christian or, or not, I encourage every single one of us to come this morning with our hearts open. God, would you speak to me by your spirit? Amen? And we're continuing our series on Romans this morning, um, which if you remember right from the very beginning, Pastor Clive set this out, say we're going to look at Romans because Romans really encapsulates what the gospel is. And we need to understand this gospel that we've had entrusted to us, this good news of Jesus, but also how we can communicate it to others. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at Romans 9 to 11, a really tricky portion of scripture that loads of Bible commentators kind of get to and they go, oh, this bit. (laughs) And yet, Pastor Jane, predominantly over the last few weeks, has done such an amazing job of communicating so simply, in a way I think only we can do by God's Spirit, such key truths about God's plan, where the Jewish people fit into it, and where we Gentiles fit into it. And we're moving this morning on to Romans 12. And in Romans 12, Paul is moving from exposition or or, uh, explanation to application. He's going from, this is the plan, and now from Romans 12, how do we enact the plan? What does this gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes first unto the Jew and then unto the Gentile, what does it look like in practical terms? Today's text, then, we're going to start with Romans 12, 9, and I'm going to read this from the Amplified Bible because I think it really brings out the, uh, the meaning of these verses. It says this, Love is to be sincere and active. The real thing without guile and hypocrisy. Hate what is evil. Detest all ungodliness. Do not tolerate wickedness. Hold on tightly to what is good. Or the Revised Standard Version sums it up really succinctly in this way. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now this is such an important verse for the way we communicate the gospel. It is also such an important measuring stick against which we test the attitudes and motivations of our heart. Am I loving genuinely? Am I hating what God says is not good? Now, we've probably all asked ourselves this question at some point in regards to others. How can I love others, particularly those who maybe live a different way to me, have different values and beliefs? How can I love them genuinely and well, and yet at the same time not compromise what the Bible says, my beliefs and and what I believe to be true? 
And I think there is nowhere where this question has been more sort of wrestled with and how we apply this than into the area of the way the church communicates with and responds to the gay community. Now, I recognise that this morning, this is a, talking about homosexuality and the gay community is for many a particularly emotive and for some difficult topic. We probably all know somebody, a family member, a friend, a colleague, a neighbour, maybe whom we love dearly, who is a member of this community. And many of those, myself included, I have friends who are gay, who um, many of whom have experienced real hurt from the church of God. Um, and, uh, and many of whom, wrestling with their sexuality, have come to a place where they've sought help in the church. Help me understand this. What does God say about this? And have met with judgment, shame, and rejection. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm sure many of us have seen that, or maybe some of you even in this room or, or hearing this message this morning, maybe you've even been on the receiving end of some of that. Maybe uh, you, you've just struggled with the best way to connect with people from the gay community. Or maybe you yourself are wrestling at the moment with your own sexuality, not knowing who to turn to or how to ask the questions that you might have. Maybe you're listening to this and you are gay yourself. Perhaps even you yourself have been hurt by the church. Wherever you're at, wherever you're coming from, this morning I ask, just please bear with me. Please allow me to take us on a journey to where I believe God wants to take us and some conclusion before turning off at maybe the first line. It's so important that we embrace the art of conversation around these topics. There is this really um, awful, pervasive kind of attitude within, uh, particularly, I'm sorry, my generation, um, that says, if you disagree with me, you must hate me, and we can have nothing to do with each other and the conversation ends. Please let us not give in to that this morning, and let us have this conversation, of course, sensitively and appropriately. Um, so this morning, I want to approach this with that sensitivity, but also hopefully with clarity. I also want to approach this topic humbly. I recognise I don't have all the answers here. I also uh, recognise that it would be the worst thing in the world for me to stand up here and communicate anything of my opinion. I want to get all of my opinion or anything of Colin out of the way, because though I don't have all the answers, I believe God does. And we want to hear from him, his spirit, and his word this morning. Amen? I do want you to know, for what it's worth, that I've probably never prayed so much, studied so much, read so much, listened to so many people and different viewpoints on this topic, or needed to allow God to search my heart than for any message I've ever prepared for. Um, there is a lot to pack in this morning, and we're going to go at quite a pace. But if you need to watch it back again, then we can. But I also want to make it clear that this morning, predominantly this message is not aimed at the gay community. Though, please, I'm happy if you're here and going on this journey with us. It is predominantly aimed at us, the church. Okay, so please just bear that in mind through everything that's communicated this morning. And of course, most importantly, Holy Spirit, please help me. <laughs> the church generally has responded then in one of three ways to this question of how do we love others without compromising what the Bible says. The first is a liberal response who change what the Bible says to meet current cultural uh, norms and, uh, and, and kind of rhythms. Another is a conservative response that though may handle this topic biblically, the way they go about communicating is anything but biblical. 
It is devoid of grace or compassion or love or kindness or mercy. The third part then of the church has been the church that has just buried their head in the sand and hoped that all of this will blow over and will never have to really wrestle with any of these issues or what this means for us or for me. We don't want to be any of these three. Amen. We want to go on a journey to grapple with these questions and come out the other side carrying the heart of Jesus, yep. representing him and his gospel well, full of truth and full of love. So with this preamble out of the way, <laughs> let's begin. We're going to use Romans 12, 9 as our framework. Remember, that was love, be genuine, love genuinely, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. First then, evil. The Bible defines evil as anything that is in opposition to God or anything that is absent of God's goodness or outside of his will. The Bible calls an act of evil sin. That is anything that is outside of God's will for us. Now, God is not a grumpy old man getting mad at things that frustrate him. Uh, Psalm 86 says this, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God. You are slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Let me remind you, that is the nature of the God that we're talking about this morning. Abounding in love. So he tells us that certain things are sin then for a reason. Let me ask, what pictures do the words sin and evil conjure up in your mind? Maybe war. Maybe famine, maybe natural disasters, maybe hateful things done to children, whatever it might be. But the Amplified Bible helps define sin in a much clearer way than that, that is much more all-encompassing. Sin is missing the true, simply missing the true end and scope for our lives, which is God. Or to miss the mark in your relationship with God. Evil, then, is simply an absence of God. So when the Bible gives us a list of an explanation of what kind of things are sin in God's eyes, it's not like he's just picking things that he doesn't like, like coriander and pistachios, <laughs> but things that cause us to miss God's true end and scope for our lives, knowing him. And yes, one of the things listed in the sin, as sin in the Bible is homosexuality. Now, for many gay people, I understand that this is often the end of the conversation. But before maybe you walk out of this room or whatever device you happen to be watching in this on is launched across the TV or, or across the room where you put your foot through the TV, please bear with me. Let us unpack this and explore this for a moment. The reason that many gay people don't want anything to do with God or his church is because they know what God's word says, that they are sinners. Now again, I'm not going on some witch hunt here, or, or this is not a message that is going to be full of, of bigotry or finger pointing or anything like that. So if you have this, this sense of, here we go again, please just, just again, bear with me before you have to go and buy a new Sony Bravia, you know, just bear with me. In this passage, earlier in, sorry, in this year, we looked at Romans chapter one, uh, which talks about homosexuality uh, amongst other sins. Pastor Clive at the time said, right, we're looking at this now, but... We're, we're going to go into this more depth later in the evening. That's today. This passage in Romans 1 talks about homosexuality. But it also talks about a whole host of other sins. And this is so important for us as a church to really recognise. Homosexuality is listed alongside heterosexual sin. It says, therefore, God gave them over in the, uh, to, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Heterosexual heterosexual uh, sexual immorality. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served other created things. 
For us in the West, that could be idols of fame, wealth, or power, rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over their shameful lusts. And then it talks about both uh, lesbian, homosexual um, acts of sex acts and also uh, gay sex acts between men. It then goes on, though, and this is important, it doesn't stop there. It then goes on to talk about um, not keeping God first, injustice, malice, greed, wickedness, envy, murder, strife, lying, mischievousness, gossip, slander, backbiting, God-hating, violence, being overbearing, arrogance, pride, boastfulness, and disobeying your parents. I love the way, Jave Helly and I were chatting about this, and I love the way he put this. Uh, I'm going to misquote him here because I'm going from memory, but he said something like this. In these passages, Paul is not taking a sniper rifle and taking aim at one particular sin or one particular sinner and saying, out of all these things, there's evil right there in my sights. He's taking a machine gun and going, you ready? All of you lot. Everyone, this sin, that sin, every single sin, all of you, you over there, you over there, every single one, because he is trying to clearly make this point that he will surmise two chapters later that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no us and them, because the Bible says that we, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has gone his own way. There is no such thing here as us and them. Even specifically on sexuality. My sexuality as a straight non-Christian was no different in God's eyes than any gay person. You may have slept with men if you're a man. I slept with women. They are both sinful in God's eyes. But you and I are no different. We are the same. It would be therefore tremendously hypocritical of me to stand in judgment over another for their sin when God has been so merciful to me in life. But sadly, this seems to have often been what we have done as the church. Now, not everyone, I'm not, this shouldn't be like, you know, broad brushstroke, everybody. But I believe we as the church need to take responsibility for this. We have so frequently villainized this one sin above all others, demonizing it. This is the worst possible thing. John Stott, once again, in his commentary on Romans, sums up these chapters of Paul's message to the church in Rome like this. Are you ready? (laughs) It's a pointy one. Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient towards ourselves. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. We even gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning in others the very faults we excuse in ourselves. In judging other people, we thereby condemn ourselves. For this is the hypocrisy of the double standard a high standard for other people, and a comfortably low one for ourselves. I think this is interesting, we're just going to drop this in there, that there are only six references to homosexuality in the whole Bible. There are 44 references to hypocrisy. Yes. I'm not trying to make light of sexual sin here. Please hear my heart. 
I'm not trying to make light of what the Bible says about homosexuality or sin in general. I am merely trying to suggest that our message may be heard so much more clearly if it had integrity and conviction. If we were to address these other sins, especially those present in our own lives, with as much, if not more, conviction than we point out the sins in the lives of others. Beloved church, is there compromise in our lives that we need to repent of? This is a personal question to each one of us, and it is, it is to me too. If any of this feels pointy this morning, I can't apologise because it's as pointy to me. <laughs> you know, this is God piercing our hearts with his word. Are there sins that we pretend are the not-so-bad ones? Perhaps our message will be heard more clearly if we were communicated it once again with integrity. Dear church, do we sometimes think of the righteousness that we have in Christ, that he has won for us through shedding his blood on the cross as something that has come from ourselves and judge others in our self-righteousness rather than boasting in our weakness, declaring I am a sinner just like you, yet I've been saved by grace and you can be too. Perhaps our message will be heard more clearly if communicated then with humility. Now, the Bible does speak about homosexuality as sin. Let's look at what it really is saying. For many gay people, their sexuality in no way feels like a choice, not something they have chosen, but something they have always known to be. And we're not going to go into the politics of that conversation or the science or anything like that. We're just looking at, God, what do you want to say to us about this this morning? It becomes then a question not about what they do, but who they are, who I am. So when the church tell people that who they are is evil, it's usually game over for ongoing dialogue. But does the Bible actually say this? No, it doesn't. Now, for the Christians in the room, before you walk out or you take your device, whatever you're watching this on, you throw it across the room or you put your foot through your TV, please bear with me. Oh, I'm so glad I was asked to do this one this morning. Now, the term homosexuality wasn't coined until the late 19th century by an Austrian-born Hungarian psychologist called Karoly Maria Benkert. It is a relatively modern term and idea. The Greco-Roman world of Paul's day that Paul is writing to in the Roman church did not have terms or concepts that correspond to a contemporary dichotomy of heterosexual sexuality and homosexuality. They just didn't exist. The thinking of the day was that a person Uh, could be uh, erotically attracted to the beauty in either sex. This was demonstrated by the slogan in Corinth when they said, the food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. They kind of, we've talked about this before, they had this saying of like, whatever takes your fancy at the time. There wasn't an idea that if that, as a man, if that happened to be a man, that made you gay, or if it was a woman, it was straight. It was just whatever you fancied at the time. And it was this that Paul was speaking into. He was like, this is all of this. This is not okay. This is not God's plan for for holiness, for purity, what he calls you to, no matter what it is. So what Paul is talking about in each passage, and, and, and in the Old Testament too, is a sexual act, not a sexual orientation. Sexual idea of sexual orientation did not exist. It, it was it's a modern concept. It was alien to them. As a straight man attracted to women, I have a choice in what I do with my attraction. I can either entertain it with lust, fantasy, 
maybe pornography, sex, and take those desires and submit them to my flesh or submit myself to my flesh or to the devil. Or I can submit my thoughts, my feelings, my attractions to God, refraining from acting upon them and allowing them to become sin. Now, the same is, someone who is, is true of someone who's same-sex attracted. It is not evil to recognize your desires. It is what we do with those desires that matters. Galatians 5.24 says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful, nation to his, their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. I cannot crucify desires if, if I pretend I don't have them. I must recognize in honesty and humility, God, I come before you in my weakness. I want what you say is wrong. But I choose to trust in your grace to take my cross and leave these things there. To use biblical terminology, temptation is not the same as sin. It cannot be. Because the Bible says that Jesus himself was tempted in every way, just as we are, which means in all the ways we're talking about today, and yet was without sin. Now, if you're gay, I don't know if this distinction means very much to you. You might say, okay, it's semantics. But I believe, please stay with me for a start as we explore this further. But also, I think for the church, this is such an important thing to understand, especially for people within the church who are wrestling with their sexuality. If you're having these kind of thoughts, it does not mean there's something wrong with you. It means you're human and you're in need of God's grace, just like we all are. In just the same way that as a straight man, I too am in need of God's grace and wrestle with my sexuality. Because all of us, all of us sin and fall short. All of us need God's grace. This, once again, is kind of reminiscent then of this culture of grace message. These messages we had just over a year ago. um, That it's okay then to bring this stuff into the light. I would encourage you to do that. Don't let shame keep you in any kind of bondage. Whether you're straight, gay, whatever, doesn't matter. Don't let shame keep you trapped in wherever you have been. Let us explore this together. What is the good that God has for you? And for the sake of clarity, from now on this morning, anytime I mention sexuality, I'm talking about this context Paul's talking about, that sort of active act of will, act of sin. Now, the Bible, so the Bible doesn't say that recognizing your same-sex attracted as sin, but it does clearly say that homosexuality is a sin. Now, lastly, on this point of sin, I think it's so important that we realize that the ultimate sin or ultimate evil is not what we do with our sexuality. It is our unbelief. It is our unbelief that keeps us in bondage to sin. Now, I'm not saying that sexual sin, therefore, we we just we don't worry about. That's fine because unbelief is worse. That's not what I'm saying. But it's not the ultimate. Unbelief is. Jesus said that apart from sorry, Jesus said that there is no one righteous, not even one. If somebody stopped being gay and became completely straight overnight like that, it doesn't mean they're any more righteous in God's eyes. Let's not pretend, as the church, that they would be. They still need Jesus. This is not an issue of sexuality. This is an issue of unbelief. Jackie Hill Perry, who is an incredible poet and um, just absolutely amazing author, one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read, uh, wrote this book, Gay Girl, Good Good God. Her story of going from uh, a lesbian 
who encounters Jesus and all that he leads her into. And she wrote this. Yet unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good. So it can't see sin as the ultimate evil. It instead sees sin as a good thing and thus God's commands as a stumbling block to joy. In believing the devil, I didn't need a pentagram pendant to wear. Neither did I need to memorize a hex or two. All I had to do was trust myself more than God's word. I had to believe that my thoughts, my affections, my rights, my wishes were worthy of absolute obedience and that in laying prostrate before the flimsy throne I'd made for myself, that I would be doing a good thing. You and I, the church, we cannot author faith in a person. Only Jesus can do that. We cannot convict of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We cannot draw them to the Father's heart. Only the Father can do that. So although today we have started with looking at sin, perhaps in communicating the gospel, this is not the best place to start. Perhaps the best place to start is introducing people to Jesus, showing and telling people his goodness rather than their badness. Again, Jackie Hill Perry. Why hadn't they ever mentioned the place happiness had with righteousness or how the taking up of the cross would be a practice of obtaining delight? Mm -hmm. Delight in all that God is. Even their saviour had this kind of joy in mind as he endured the cross. So why hadn't they set their focus on the same? In their defence, they were not to blame for my unbelief. I just wonder if they would have told me about the beauty of God just as much, if not more, than they had told me about the horridness of hell, if I wouldn't have burned my idols at a faster pace. Wow, incredible communicator. So evil, the first word we're looking at in Romans 9, the second then is hate. Having established what the Bible says about sin and evil, we now look at what it says about our response to sin and evil, what it should be. And it says hatred. Now, obviously, I don't think we can talk about the word hate in this context without immediately giving pictures in our heads of Christians picketing with billboards and posters and placards that say, God hates F-A-Gs. That is not what this is talking about. In fact, I believe that it is our responsibility as the church here on behalf of God's entire church to repent to the gay community for the way we have communicated who God is. Now, this was really the mantra of one church in one part of America in the 90s. And yet the damage that has been inflicted by these hateful words has left such a lasting impression that for many gay people, they think it is what we all stand for. We are sorry. If that is you, that is not God's heart. And that was never the way that that should have been communicated. You might think I'm doing a terrible job today, by the way. (laughs) But that is so much worse. When we mention this word, this is not what we're talking about. The perfect example of this hatred of sin is, of course, found in Jesus. Because nobody other than Jesus had ever truly understood the true impact and effects of sin. Jesus experienced it on the cross. He, unlike any other person, knows what sin does to a person because it was all laid upon him. The separation from God, the pain, the anxiety, the despair, the spiritual death. He hates it because he knows what it does to a person. But it seems that as though that Jesus did not just hate sin it. Sin as in acts of evil. Of course, he did the exploitation of the innocent, maybe the judgment and hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the time. But 
He also hated sin for what it does to us, separating us from God, promising so much good, but ultimately bringing hurt and pain. Jesus then, he spent his time with sinners. He came to save us from our sin. His hatred for sin was perfect, not emotional or reactive. It did not cause him to recoil from us in horror, but to draw near to us in mercy, love and compassion. He described us sinners as being like sick sick people in need of a doctor. Sin then, like some kind of cancer, ravaging our bodies, bringing death and destruction and torment and pain. But he was the one with the cure. When Jesus looked down upon Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your, chi- gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. These were murderers of God's messengers. You can't get much more sinful than that, right? And yet Jesus' heart was compassion, wanting to draw them, protect them, rescue them. So if we are going to be like Jesus and see the effects of sin in people's lives, separating from God and want to demonstrate love, what might it look like? I think this is exemplified so beautifully in Acts 17, where the Apostle Paul comes to Athens. And it says this, that as he was wandering around, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, he knew idolatry to be sinful. It would only end up hurting these people. But what did he do? It says he talked with them. He preached Jesus and the resurrection, not fire and brimstone, hell and damnation, but Jesus. And then he comes and meets with them and talks about their idols. Now we might expect him to shout at them, you need to tear down these idols, you sinful people. He doesn't. He uses the idol as a point of reference of common understanding. And he says this to them, I see that you are a very religious people. For as I walked around and looked carefully, and I think this is important, At your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. He then proceeds to explain that this God that they didn't know was the God of the Bible. Now let's parallel that with, with this context. Maybe we feel distress at the effects of sin. But if our response is the same as Paul's, then we come to converse, to yes, preach Jesus and the resurrection, but also to carefully examine, to explore, to understand, to listen, to see. And then to come and say, maybe even like Paul, we could say, I see that you are a people of love. You love others and you talk about loving others. You invite love, you encourage love, you represent love. Now, let me tell you where the origin of that love comes from. Let me tell you what real love looks like. This love to you that the real source has been unknown, let me proclaim it to you. The source is Jesus. Where this desire for love comes from is God. And though ours may be a flimsy reproduction that falls short, the desire for it is God-given. But it's only truly meant to be met in him. So what if we took this approach? David Bennett, another wonderful author in his his wonderful book, War of Loves, uh, the unexpected story of a gay rights activist discovering Jesus, speaks of this in his book. The war to find love still raged within me, 
But I knew there had to be more than my incessant search for intimacy in relationships. It just didn't satisfy any longer. Years later, I would read C.S. Lewis's words that describe what I was experiencing. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. <laughs> he goes on a couple of chapters later to describe the moment that a friend, a Christian friend, explained God's love for him and prayed for him. In laying her hands upon him, he said this, in a moment, in that experience so totally from outside me and so totally unasked for, everything turned upside down in my mind. All my searching in religion, in relationships, in atheism, none of it compared with this love coursing through me like electricity. For the first time, I knew God was real and that he loved me. This changes everything, I realized. So we've talked about these first two words then, evil and hatred, that draws us then to love. So what is love? I want to quote David Bennett again here. During my time as a gay activist, we frequently used the famous slogan, love is love, while fighting the orthodox Christian definition of marriage. Love, as we defined it, was our highest ideal and our sacred entity. That, in our minds, settled the issue. But while our slogan was popular, it was shallow at best. Love is love doesn't mean that much semantically, and it provides no definition for what love actually is, nor can it differentiate between the various kinds of human love and desire. I love my wife. I love my mate Dave. I love a chip butty. I love God. Those are all very different kinds of love. That's right. And if you mix them up, you can get arrested. Yeah. <laughs> different kinds of love are talked about in the Bible, but unfortunately they're all translated with one word in English, love. But the two words that are used in the Bible for love, the first is agape. This is the God love, the transcendent love, the perfect love, love in action, the love that Paul poetically and beautifully describes in 1 Corinthians 13 that says is patient, is kind, is, uh, is, does not envy, does not boast, is not rude, that never ends, that always protects, that um, always loves, that is not delighted in evil but rejoices in the truth. He, this perfect God love is something entirely different and of another order than human love. Yeah. When God says, God is, the Bible says God is love, it says God is agape. The other kind of word is filio, a brotherly love exhibited in a close friendship. This love is generous and affectionate. It is warm, shared, and seeks to make the other happy. Yet it is human and based upon feelings which can change. We are not called to filio our enemies, for example. We are called to agape our enemies. When Jesus came to restore Peter after the latter denied him three times, Jesus asked him these questions. Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. But in Greek, it says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, I filio you. Yeah. Jesus repeats this question to him. And he's, in part of what he is doing, Jesus is showing him that, Peter, there is a higher love that if you understood it and embraced it, then you would never deny me again. Yeah. There's a power in agape that cannot be expressed in any other kind of love. There are mainly two other kinds of Greek words that were used around the time of the Bible, though are not actually present in the Bible itself, uh, that were used to express the word love. The first is eros, which is a sexual love, and the other is storge, or familial love. Um, the antithesis of storge is used in the Bible, but not storge itself. Recognizing these differences in definition and expression of love is vital in how we communicate the gospel. 
it is not denying that the love between two men in a committed same-sex relationship isn't real. But just like the love between a man and a woman that is not surrendered to God, it is a human love and not a transcendent or saving love. That kind of love can only come from God alone and is reciprocated in us for God and by extension through that love of God for other people. Love then is not always love. When we're communicating the gospel here then, let's make sure that the gospel that we're communicating is the gospel of Jesus, that is God love, agape, and not the gospel of heterosexuality. That is human love. If we're saying to a lesbian, leave your life of sin as a gay woman and come and marry a man, why would she want that? That is not an attractive proposition, nor is it the gospel. Now, it is true that some gay people, upon giving their lives to Jesus, find that their same-sex attraction evaporates. It changes. It is replaced with a heterosexuality. This is Rosaria Butterfield's story. The author of The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Um, She was a, a... a gay woman in a committed relationship. She was also an atheist. She was looking to disprove the Bible. And through the love and generosity and kindness and um, just community offered by a minister uh, who was helping her understand the Bible she was trying to disprove, she found the love of Christ. She left behind making one of the hardest decisions of her life to leave her partner and follow Jesus. And yet through that journey found that her entire self changed in her desires and her outlooks, she's now happily married to a man. However, there are other people like Jackie Hill Perry that we've, we've quoted today, who has also been saved, still has same-sex attraction, and yet finds one man, one man whom she falls in love with, still generally attracted to women, but loves and is attracted to this one man. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that me as a, as a straight man, I'm supposed to be attracted to all women everywhere. Probably a bad thing. I'm called to love my wife. And this was her story. And still there are others like David Bennett. Again, we've quoted this morning. Incredible testimony of how God radically changed his life. And he is now completely sold out, committed to Jesus. Yet he still experiences same-sex attraction. He's not in any way attracted to women. But he's chosen then to submit that to Jesus. That means for him, he's going to live as a celibate single man for the rest of his life. Just honoring God. Marriage is no bad thing. Marriage is a wonderful thing. Marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. It's meant to be a picture of Jesus and his love for the church. But again, to quote Jackie Hill Perry, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. In people like David, they're showing us there is nothing less or lesser or second class in being single. And also, this is maybe something else we need to repent of as the church, in our idolatry of of saying that marriage is the ultimate good, it is not. Paul said, I wish you could all be like me. I wish you could all be single. Um, Marriage is a good thing, but singleness is also a high calling and a good and wonderful and important thing. If we were to represent this better as well and talk about this as a good thing, maybe this would change the impact of our message too. Yep, amen. Do you still love me? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Love then is not always love. Now I want to share another, um, another quote here because it's important that whatever new life with Jesus looks like, whether it's like Rosaria Butterfield's or David Bennett's or Jackie Hill Perry's, 
This new life that we're communicating must be life with Jesus. Not leave your old life and come and start a new one with a man, but leave your old life and come and start a new one with God. Again, Jackie Hill Perry, when salvation has taken place in the life of someone under the sovereign hand of God, they are set free from the penalty of sin and its power. Amen? Amen. In a body without the spirit, sin is an unshakable king under whose dominion no man can flee. The entire body with its members, affections, and mind are all willfully submit themselves to sin's rule. But when the spirit of God takes back the body that he created for himself, he sets it free from the pathetic master that once held it captive and releases it to the marvelous light of its savior. It is then able to not only want God, but is actually able to obey God. And isn't that what freedom is supposed to be? The ability to not do as I please, but the power to do what is pleasing. St. Augustine put it this way, O God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Agape in action, then. Love in action. So far in Romans, all references to agape have all been to the love of God for us. The love of God demonstrated on the cross, the love of God poured out in our hearts, the love of God not letting us go. But now, from here in Romans 12, Paul focuses on agape as the essence of Christian discipleship. It is reflecting God's love out. This was really driven home to me with a conversation with my wife around the dinner table one evening. Now, Kate works in Brighton, which is the gay capital of the UK. Um, she works with many people, about 50% or so um, of the, the people employed where she works are members of the LGBTQI plus community. And um, she is called, she knows she is called to represent the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus to these people. And she was having a meeting with somebody one day uh, and she realized that some of the language she used hadn't been very inclusive. And after the meeting, upon the prompting of the Holy Spirit, she took this person aside and said, I'm really, I'm really sorry. The language I used there wasn't very inclusive of you. I just want to let you know that, that I'm going to try and do better in the future with that because I really value you. I really value your decisions, who you are. And, uh, and, and this person was so touched, was so thankful, knew they were cared for and loved. And they said, thank you. You know, I really, really appreciate that. And Kate was just sharing this. And, and I had this witness at the time in my spirit of, wow, now that's, that's just a little bit of love in action. That's great. But do you know what came out of my mouth? Criticism of they. The first thing that came out of my mouth was things like the way they uh, twist the English language, the way they um, do this and do that, the way they um, have this agenda, all that kind of thing. And I felt in that moment the Holy Spirit say to me, Colin, how many of your words have been spent in judgment and criticism of another compared to the number of words that have been spent in prayer and communicating my love for them. Now, I think this is even, I got a sense of even amongst Christians, how often we as Christians behind closed doors might say something in judgment about a person compared to getting in the prayer closet and praying or saying, hey, can you help me? How can I better communicate Jesus to this person? And in that moment, I had to repent. I did not think that I was bigoted or prejudiced. I thought I was maybe even quite good at loving members of the gay community. But it turned out that there was hidden sin in my heart that I hadn't, yeah. wasn't aware of that God had to reveal to me and I need to repent of. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry for and I've done that. That I may show God's genuine agape love yeah. from his heart. Yeah. Because, of course, if love is going to be genuine, it must originate from him. 
Genuine then. Let's move on to our last word, genuine. In the Greek, this word is anipokritos, which literally means without hypocrisy. We're going to pose some questions here. Following Jesus is costly. It costs us literally everything. But what we gain, of course, far outweighs the cost. The Apostle Paul said, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When communicating the gospel to someone who is gay, we should remember what is being asked of them. Of course, this is true for any of us who follow Jesus, that in order to follow him, they must lay down relationships, culture, community. This is a huge sacrifice. Now, of course, we need to communicate that what we gain when we lay down our old lives is so much better that in comparison, whatever good we saw in our old life was rubbish in comparison to what we gain in God, of course, but we still need to recognize this cross that they're going to have to bear. And of course, again, this is true for all of us, but how can we ask someone else to do something that we are not willing to do ourselves? Jesus said, if anyone comes to me but does not hate the very idea of placing his father and mother, his wife and children, ouch, his brother and sisters, and even himself above his love for me, he cannot be my disciple. People like David Bennett, who laid down everything of their old life and just following Jesus and saying, well, I'm going to be celibate and single for him forever then, because this is the way I can honor him and what he has done in my life are an inspiration, but they are also a challenge to us. Am I, this is my question to us, I believe God's question to us, am I laying down my life and taking up my cross? What story does my life tell? David Bennett says this again, this is a hard-hitting one, you ready? When Jesus Christ is relegated to a hobby for middle-class families and not allowed to be the Lord of entire lives, we are bound to destroy the witness of his gospel. What the Western church needs is a new identity that recognizes that Jesus isn't just a peripheral interest. He is the center of everything. Amen. And again, if any of this, there's any conviction in you of this, whew, it's in me too. Also want to communicate that no matter how costly it is to lay down our lives, of course, what we gain, again, what we have in Christ is so much greater. One of the pictures that Jesus gave me in this this journey was from John 8, where we find the story of the woman caught in adultery, dragged into the streets by the religious leaders who, under the law, quite rightly, could have stoned stoned her to death. And yet we have this picture of Jesus stepping in front of her and bending down and writing in the sand. Now, we don't know what he wrote, but it's pretty generally agreed that probably what he wrote was the sin of the people that had the stones in their hands ready to stone this woman. The woman had sinned. We're not pretending she didn't. But Jesus, having written this in the sand, stands up and he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. One by one, they drop their stones and they leave. Jesus then turns to the woman and says, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. And again, this picture of this, sometimes this hypocrisy of the church, maybe this modern picture would be us not throwing literal stones, but our words or our prejudices against the person who maybe biblically we could say we have every right to judge, yet Jesus' heart is is compassion. Maybe he bends down and writes in the dirt before our feet, pornography. 
the way you're lusting after your secretary. Yeah. Or maybe the anger that you have for your brother. Yeah. Or maybe the way that you swore as you were cut up in traffic this morning on the way to church. <laughs> Whatever it might be. And he looks us in the eye and says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. Let us be the ones who immediately drop our stones and say, Father, forgive us for my yes. judgment. Yes, Lord. Let me earn the right to be the one who says, neither then do I condemn you. Amen. And maybe then we have the right to say, go and sin no more. Yeah. Lastly then, one question that we ask ourselves a lot in this area goes something like this. How do I show love without compromising what the Bible says? Or how can I meet with this person or go to this thing or do this thing or whatever without it looking like I'm condoning their sin? Yeah. Now, Jesus, again, is our example, isn't he? <laughs> Every time he is. Jesus was the least compromising person ever. Jesus never condoned sin. He is the living word. Like <laughs> He cannot be compromising. And yet he was the most accused of compromise. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. The religious people of the day said, because you eat with these people, you must agree with everything they do. This was the understanding of the time. Eating with a person, it was like saying, I'm one with you in this. So Jesus, uncompromising, and yet went and spent his time with the people. He didn't care what the religious people labeled him as. He was more concerned in communicating the love of Jesus for a person than he was about what others thought about his convictions. Can we take our example from him? Lastly then, in this genuine love, if we're to take the whole verse, let your love be genuine, hate what is evil. Sometimes we've taken this phrase and um, summed it up as this, love the, love the sinner, hate the sin. This is not a biblical verse. This is actually a quote of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, and although it's kind of reflected here, I believe it's a shallow interpretation of what the Bible is saying. Because it puts all of the focus and attention just on that other person. Love the sinner, hate the sin. It removes from us any responsibility to hate the sin within our own lives. Yes, love genuinely, but hate sin, including our own judgment, our own prejudice. God, yeah. I need to hate that and resent that first so that I may communicate your love. Because as human beings, though God can perfectly love and perfectly hate what is evil, again, not in an emotional way, it, for us it bleeds. As soon as we see a person through the lens of what they do, I mean, so much we say, you know, judge me on what I do, not what I say. You know, for us, a character and essence of a person is often judged through what they do. So these things bleed. We can't help it. So let's then, if our love is to be genuine, recognize, God, I am never going to be able to perfectly love any other person, no matter who they are, where they're from, what their background, whatever their beliefs or values. Jesus, please give me your heart. Please give me your love. Holy Spirit, when they look in my eyes, let them not see. Please not see me or my, <laughs> my failings in loving perfectly, let them see Jesus looking Amen. out of my eyes. Amen. Lord, the only true genuine love is love that is authored by you. Amen. So our response then, practically, we can pray. Yeah. We've purposely not left time this morning for discussion after this because I believe that though discussion is gonna be vitally important and we might have loads of questions this morning, oh, that was, hopefully that was really helpful, thank you. Um, Jesus, what you're showing me about this and showing me in my heart, but I have these questions. How, what about this situation? What about that? Those are all good, but it must start, I believe, God saying, it must start with not us having a conversation this morning. There's an opportunity to share our own opinions, 
but as an opportunity to start with saying, God, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way within me first and then have these questions. So this morning, I encourage you, before any conversation about this happens, both praying this morning, which we're going to do in a moment, but really take some time to seek God in this in your own time. Just lay your heart before him. God, show me your heart in this. Show me if there is, has been any hypocrisy. Maybe there's not. There have been so loads of Christians who have been brilliant in this. So please, again, this is not a condemnation message at all. But if there's any conviction, Holy Spirit, let me not ignore it. So practically then, we're going to pray. We're going to do that in a moment. Second, we can learn. I've mentioned some books and quotes of some books this morning. We have some of them in the library. I'd really encourage you to read them. David Bennett, his, war, his book, War of Loves, is a phenomenal testimony and theology. Jackie Hill Perry, her book, Gay Girl, Good God. Rachel Gilson, Born Again This Way, and many others. Get reading and allow God to challenge and, and inspire us to love. Also community. Radically ordinary hospitality. This is what Rosaria Butterfield's story, The Gospel Comes with the House Key, is about. Maybe just inviting that neighbour, friend, colleague, whoever, for a meal spending time with them, listening to them, learning about them, like Paul in Athens, carefully examining and using it as an opportunity to say, hey, I see, I see what's in you. I see these desires in you, a person of love. Let me tell you about the God of love and how he's shown me who he is. If you are wrestling with your own sexuality in church, please come and have a conversation with me. Just come and let me know. It doesn't have to be this morning, just at some point, just come and let's talk, let's explore this together. You know my story. You know that I am not, I, I understand this, maybe from a different point of view, the other side of the, the coin, but it is the same thing. If you're gay, and maybe you have disagreed with everything I've said this morning, please come and let me know. Let's continue this conversation. I want to hear what you have to say about this. But maybe whether you're gay, straight, or you know thoughts about sexuality this morning at all, but you've heard something of this idea of who Jesus is, this God of love, this God who is, is slow to anger and abounding in love, who loves you. You've heard something of that message of his gospel, his good news of salvation this morning, and you've thought, there is something in me of the Holy Spirit saying, I need that. Then I'll encourage you to also come join me and pray. Would you all stand with me? Those in Crawley and, and at home, let's stand. Firstly, let's bring our hearts before God and submit ourselves afresh before God. I mentioned earlier about this repentance on behalf of the church, the gay community, and I believe that's something we can all do personally. Father, forgive us as your church. Even though I had nothing to do with it, forgive us as your church where we've misrepresented you. Let's do some business with God now and just speak to him. God, show me if there's any wicked way in me. Show me my heart. Show me if there's any unseen bigotry or prejudice. Show me any ways that I've not loved well. God, show me the compromise in my life where I'm not taking up my cross, where I pass something off as not that bad. Jesus, forgive me. Show it to me. And Lord, let me represent your gospel in the way that I live, in the way that I so utterly need to show my dependence and trust on you. Jesus, let me communicate your gospel, your good news, your truth. 
Give me your heart, O God. Help me to steward your gospel and not get in its way. I trust you're, you guys, you're praying, not just waiting for me to pray right now. This, this needs to be us dealing with, with our hearts, laying them before God. But God, we pray, make us a church that represents your heart, where all are welcome and all find you. And Jesus, for anyone today, if you have not known Jesus, and this morning there's a sense in your heart of, I want him. I want this gospel, this good news you've been talking about. I just want to invite you to come and pray. God, would you show me your love? Lead me into relationship with you. Teach me who you are and what you have for my life. If you want to follow Jesus, there will come a point where you're faced with the choice of, am I willing to give everything over to him? But rather than ask the question, am I willing to give up this or that or the other? The only question that's important is, are we willing to give in? To trust him that he will be enough. He will be enough for you. No matter what you lay down, no matter what you sacrifice, he will be enough. If that's you, can you pray this morning, Jesus, I'm choosing to trust you with my life and my future this morning. Forgive me for every way I've not known how to do that before for my sin. Please come and show me your love this morning. And I want to close just with this last quote from Jackie Hill Perry. Though it's important, again, as I say, we continue to pray this when we get home and, and let God examine our hearts, but I'll leave you with this. He is so much greater than the greatest thing and much more glorious than the most glorious glory the eyes could see. Knowing this, he becomes the aim of all our doing. Because if God is bigger than we can imagine, we are wasting our time to chase after something or someone lesser than him. And because we know that he is our all in all, in our temptations, our trials, and our victories, we must take place, we we must place our ultimate destiny, sorry, we must place our ultimate identity, not in who we are, but in who we know God to be. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Remember, let's continue just to seek God in this. And if you have any questions or there's something, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, whatever, and you've disagreed with something I've said, the worst thing that we could do, as I said, is to turn and walk away. The most important thing is we come and have a conversation. Let's talk about this. Let's understand one another better. Okay? Thank you. There's a long message, a lot to pack in, but I trust that God spoke to you this morning in some way. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources from Kingdom Faith and our other audio and video podcasts, please visit www.kingdomfaith.com.